Salute. Salute. And welcome to this extra special episode of Married to the Movies, coming to you live, or whenever you decide to listen to it, from a small village in Tuscany, Italy. It's called Bagni di Luca, and you wouldn't think there's much offer on cinema here. And you'd be right. But we're here after a month in Paris where we've had an um, abundance of cinematic offerings. And uh, if you follow us on various internet forums, uh, you might know some of those, but we're going to talk about them anyway. That's right. Over the month that we were in Paris, we saw lots of art, lots of paintings, all the good Renaissance stuff uh, that I like and the Impressionists that I particularly like. Doug managed to see a whole lot of modern art that I don't have quite as much time for. We saw Notre Dame, rest in peace. We did. We walked along the Seine a couple of times. The sun shone. We sat around in the Jardin Luxembourg. There might have been an Aperol spritz or two involved. That's true. Uh, A couple of coupes de champagne, some amazing meals. A trip to Brussels, which we'll get to in a a sidebar, because uh, that's part of our filmic adventure as well. That's right. And in fact, our trip to Brussels, which was... Uh, specifically to see a film, puts our films up to 10 for that particular month that we just spent in the City of Lights. So we're going to have a chat today about the nine films we saw in Paris um, and the one we saw in Brussels. Yeah, um, and the thing that I booked before we even got there, um, our arrival in Paris happened to coincide with a film festival at the Cinémathèque Francais, which... um, We'd visited on our honeymoon a few years ago, but when we were visiting at the time, although they had um, an amazing Gus Van Sant exhibit and their basement uh, collection, which has uh, like a head from Alien and, um, you know, original... Lots of sort of obscure, uh, not not so obscure memorabilia, didn't it? Was that well, like that... a Lumiere camera and things like that. And was that where there was the, the, the scenes from Le Chien on the Louvre as well? Lou, That's yes. right. Yes. So that's all at the Cinémathèque Française as a sort of a permanent ex- exhibit, I think, isn't it? And Gus Van Sant was a temporary one. Yeah, and there's a bookstore where you can spend entirely too much money. I bought a Jonas Makers book last time. Mm, and most of the book's in French, eh? Uh, yeah, and in fact, this time I bought a book that's by a French publisher about Darius Kanji, the um, cinematographer of Seven and uh, many other great films, which is um, half French and half English. So the top oh, of each good. page is in French and the bottom is in English, which is one clever way of getting around it. But... In addition to all that sort of thing, they also screen films, and mm. they have, um, when we were there last time, I think their only English language offering was Wes Craven's Vampire in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. uh, which was on uh, Bastille Day, so we um, decided to see Vampire, uh, excuse me, we decided to see some fireworks. That's right. <laughs> we did that instead. This time, however, we knew that we were in Paris for a month, and therefore when Doug said to me, hey, there's going to be a bit of a film festival on, do you fancy coming along? And seeing Nicholas Winding Refn introducing, among other films, Drive, and would you like to see that again? How could I possibly refuse? The festival's called uh, Toute la Mémoire du Monde. Did I do an okay job with that? That was fine. Okay. All the memory, um, all the memory of the world. Yeah, and it's a yearly event. Uh, last year, I think Vim Vendors was the guest of honor, and they, they usually have a couple other directors. So this year, and artisans in filmmaking. So this year, in addition to Nicholas Winding Refn. Uh, the um, Polish filmmaker Jerzy Skomolowski, Skomolowski, um, whose films were mostly in Polish, so we didn't go to those, uh, and also Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam, uh, as well as um, some various critics and such from around the world who do curatorial work, and we'll get to that in a bit. It's worth saying, of course, that at the Cinémathèque Française, their audience is French. And therefore, unless we were seeing films that are inherently English language, like Drive, which you could guarantee was going to be in its VO, its version originale, therefore it would be with the proper spoken French, uh, sorry, spoken English language, and then French subtitles, a lot of the other films, including the other, what we would call foreign films, might have been in their VO, but with French subtitles. And I, I did, um, we won't talk about the films that I ventured to on my own in addition to this very much, but I did go see a screening of El Topo because Alejandro Jodorowsky was there, um, which was in Spanish with French subtitles. Um, thankfully, and how is your French and your Spanish, Doug? Uh, my Spanish is non bien. Uh, my French is 
Trey Maird. Uh, <laughs> um, but um, had you seen El Topo before? I had seen El Topo before at three a.m. in a movie marathon. Um, when I told people I was going to see it in this condition, they're like. Uh, it'll probably make about as much sense as it did anyway. Right. And actually, I read the Wikipedia entry before I went in, mm. and it probably made more sense reading the Wikipedia entry than seeing the film sure. in a foreign language than it would have not reading the Wikipedia entry and seeing the film with English subtitles. Yeah. Um, now, it's, it's worth saying that I um, speak a bit of French and a bit of Italian, having studied both of them at university, what am I saying, 25, 26 years ago. Yes. So, for me... Um, to, to see, we, we saw La Dolce Vita, obviously in its VO of Italian, but with French subtitles. Now, I find it very difficult to understand Italians when they're speaking, because they speak so quickly. And my Italian is not yet that good, but my ability to read French is, is pretty bang on. I would say that I understood about 93%, possibly 94% of La Dolce Vita listening to the Italian, but moreover reading the, the, the French. Subtitles, yeah. yeah. And that was... Um, and I, I, I slightly undersell my French skills. I have two years of high school French, and I read and understand a lot more than I can speak or communicate. And so um, every once in a while, reading the um, French subtitles while the English language uh, is going, I'll see mm. a translation, and I'll be like, that's not right. Yeah, <laughs> you know? sure. Or that's, a, that's an interesting idiomatic phrase. Or they've added exposition there that's not clear from the... Um, English version in order to help under the audience understand. All, all of this is to say, though, dear listener, that the... I mean, normally we talk about films that we've seen and they are in our own sort of VO. They're usually English language films or they have English subtitles. And it's actually another dimension to our film-going uh, experience, isn't it? To, to see foreign films with foreign subtitles and still be able to work our way through it. And that's part of the thrill, I guess, of mm -hmm. coming to spend such a long time in Europe and sort of soak up the culture, but sort of on that culture's terms, not on our English-speaking terms. Yeah, it's, um, I'm not a person who's ever had trouble reading subtitles, and so in fact, for me, it's almost harder to see an English-language film with the subtitles <clears throat> and kind of ignore it. I'm, I'm a voracious reader. I read, I, I see, see text and it just goes straight in my head so to try to so it's almost a distraction isn't it yeah it can be a big distraction yeah um one of the interesting things too is not all the films uh have quite the same subtitles i was just looking through the booklet for uh to la memoire de monde which had a hundred films in four days and part of me is quite thankful that i couldn't understand three quarters of them because it was probably the only way i could really make choices yeah. <laughs> um, mm. um, but one of them was uh, the French title for Alien is uh, La Huitième Passenger the eighth passenger which nice. you're on the seventh seven people aboard the Nostromo of mm, course mm. refers to the internal passenger um, and Fat City which is a John Huston film that we saw was the first film we saw we saw a, pr a print of a 35 mil print and it's actually uh called la dernière chance mm. or the the, the final last, the last, last chance which yeah. is actually a much more representative title of the film um now you'd never seen this before do you want to give a quick kind of summary of what yeah. it was about so i mean look let's let's quickly explain um nicholas winding refn was one of the hallowed guests of uh, toute la memoire du monde um, as a film director, both presenting some of his own films. Uh, obviously, we saw Drive, and there's probably not a lot we need to say about Drive, but we can. But moreover, for him to, A, launch his new internet channel, uh, and B, uh, do sort of his own, not exactly a retrospective, but how would you put it? It's kind of a, the films that have influenced him or that he has valued in his life and in his filmmaking career, other people's films? Yeah, yeah. He, I, I called it, he's cu curated um, a retrospective of films that are valuable to him. Um, to the first point, there's a site called buynwr.com, which has been launched in English-speaking territories for a while, which hosts uh, films that he's paid for the restoration of and mm. is now hosting for free for the world to watch, which range from um, Santo versus the Evil Brain to uh, Spring Night, Summer Night, which is actually a um, really beautiful film uh, that was shot in the U.S. in the early 70s that's a kind of a bit um, Bergman-influenced, only set in rural Ohio with the production values of Carnival of Souls. I'm getting a little obscure, but the point is that these films are all these obscurities that he's... Uh, 
unearthed and brought back uh, yeah, to life. Yeah, unearthed and curating, mm. and he provides essays for them. Anyway, so this has been around for a while, but what's new is by nwr.com slash fr, which makes it accessible in France. And so that was the launch event for this. And there was a Midnight Marathon as well, which he did of four of the films, which I had big plans for, but I only made it through one until uh, mm. <laughs> crapping out, unfortunately. But um, to get back to Fat City. Mm, so Fat City was... Um, so you see, the nice thing about having the director there is he was um, part of a Q&A. Well, he introduced the films beforehand often and then would do a bit of a Q&A afterwards. Fat City, which I hadn't... I knew nothing about other than it's being a boxing movie, which appeals to me because boxing's the only sport I give a hoot about. And it's being a John Huston film was a film of influence to him. And it's interesting when you watch Fat, Fat City and then you rewatch Drive to draw comparisons between mm. your male protagonists, for example. Fat City being about a, a down-on-his-luck sort of former boxer. Who, this is Stacy Keach. Stacy Keach, who's um, sort of looking for a comeback, or at least he, he has an old coach who believes in him enough to say, look, if you get your drunken ass and your act together, then we might be able to sort of orchestrate some sort of comeback. And Stacy Keach... I would say bumbles his way through the film, but surprisingly charismatic, falls in with a completely inappropriate woman, um, played by... Oh, I'm not going to remember. So, okay. <laughs> so, um, played by an extraordinary actress who we thought, well, we, well, while we're watching it, I'm thinking, dear God, she's absolutely brilliant. She better have been nominated or won an Academy Award. And as it turns out, she was nominated. She lost that year, which was what? Susan Tyrell. Susan Tyrell. Of course, yeah. So Susan Tyrell, what are we talking, 1971. 1971. She's extraordinary as this completely off the, um, off the chain kind of boozy, over-the-top love interest woman. She's extraordinary in it. And we, 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 you know, quickly looked up Susan Tyrell's career thereafter and she'd done a few obscure things here and there. And then it's one of those really sad careers where people sort of peter off into an episode of Law and Order here or an episode of whatever there. And then... Well, I think that's of, unfortunately quite common for actresses, um, especially of that era. Sure. But she's so terrific in this film mm. and... Um, so anyway, the film's utterly engaging, and it... And we haven't mentioned Jeff Bridges yet. Oh, I forgot about Jeff Bridges. It's kind of, cause it's kind of a duo act, because you have Stacey Keach as the old aging um, ex, could have been a contender, and you have Jeff Bridges as the young up-and-comer, and Jeff is, Bridges is quite young in this role. I mean, Very I, young. I've never seen anything yeah, like it. Yeah, he's maybe 19, and, you know, all of, like... 65 kg or something like that mm. and, um, and he's young and charismatic and not entirely cocky and he's, he turns out to have quite a, a talent for boxing if only he'd put his mind to it but he hasn't really thought about it etc etc so it's a nice sort of uh, well nice is such a rubbish word but but it but it is a nice uh sort of comparison i suppose isn't it of the 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 aging um, probably not going to be a contender again, and the young fellow who's sort of up and coming and, and watching their parallel lives um, move on. And it does a really nice job of both setting up and then <coughs> undercutting a lot of those things we expect from that narrative of, mm. you know, here's the old pro looking for one last chance with a young up-and-comer and, -comer and um, then kind of just giving a lot of s gaps in the narrative. It's yeah. almost like a series of scenes that are often disconnected through time you know you get to the end and there's a big fight at the end and uh jeff bridge's character is on the bill and you don't even see his fight mm. on the bill it seems strangely edited and i mean you know how am i really to know but it did seem a little odd narratively that the film would go off for ages on one person's story wouldn't it and then you'd think well uh, maybe we're not going to see the other bloke again mm. and then oh he's back and so, but but I mean, even aside from aside from that, I still thought the film had a real charm and it was engaging. The performances were just gorgeous. And yeah, I think it's a film that's really about. It's almost more like a play that it's about prioritizing living in those moments in that scene and that scene with Jeff Bridges and the girlfriend in the car, mm. where um, you learn that um, she wants to get married to him, and um, there's just this long, slow scene that doesn't it doesn't quote unquote need to be as long kind of like that scene where Stacey Keach and um, Susan Tyrell are in the mm, bar for mm. a really long time and they're fighting about jukeboxes mm, and, mm. and things and they're just um, given all this room to breathe and you can see the sort of 
indulgence and also the indulgence of silences. That was something that Nicholas Winding Refn loves is having mm. these long takes where people aren't saying anything. Mm. And the film almost has two openings. Like there's one long kind of montage of Stockton. And then there's a whole other thing, which is just Stacy Keach lying in bed, like I think in his boxers or something, yeah, just lighting a cigarette eventually. Yeah, starts or off with to... him just sort of ambling across his room to find that his packet of cigarettes is empty and then slowly dressing to go outside and buy some more. So, yeah, it's really languorous. Yeah. Um, but luckily, as we say, engaging enough to, to, to keep on it. Yeah, I loved it. I was And I was really happy to see it in those conditions. Apparently it was the first film that... Uh, Nicholas Winding Refn ever saw in a cinema mm. and maybe period which is why it played but he also mentioned that the very last scene is something that um, he and actually Darius Kanji uh, ripped off for the final scene of his upcoming Amazon series which I think is called Too Old to Die Young yeah it could be yeah with Miles Teller and somebody else so we stuck around in the um, Bercy district of the Cinémathèque Française and uh, in no particular order we did go to um, see Drive uh, not for the first time for either of us obviously um, I have to say having not seen it outside of a cinema so I think I saw it twice in the theatre as you would say and, uh, and then having not seen it for years um, seeing it again in the, in the theatre with um, the music pounding, I just felt this absolute thrill of excitement and just absolutely loved it, loved Oscar Isaac, renewedly loved Carrie Mulligan. The best thing we got out of Nicholas Winding Refn's intro, I think, was his admission that a big influence on the film was Sixteen Candles. And in fact, a lot of the films he curated were things like... Um, uh, Caligula and kind of the more obvious cult choices, but mm. he said that he tried to get 16 Candles to screen and the Cinematheque Francais wouldn't let him. So. <laughs> I think it's interesting, probably more interesting for listeners to hear a little bit about Nicholas Winding Refn and what he was like and what he said, rather than for us to rehash the films, right? Because right. the odds on people going to see them are probably slimmer. And um, I have to say, I wasn't enamored of him. I, I was sort of stuck, I am sort of stuck between thinking that he's a rather disingenuous, self-indulgent director who tried to convince the audience or the questioner or whatever that actually he doesn't like sex and violence. He doesn't like to watch sex and violence, which just felt really disingenuous. Um, oh, I've never been in a fight and blah, blah, blah. Um, with at the same time, and also when he, I mean, he, he, he did a big spiel, not helped, I must say, by the fact that he said it in English as he would, and we had to wait for the interpreter to interpret it in, in French, and so it was a bit broken up, wasn't it, a bit mm. stilted, a bit disjointed, and he did this big lead up to how he met Ryan Gosling and how he came up with the idea for Drive and how Ryan got interested, etc., etc., which is quite an interesting story if it's a bit more fluent. But then he's like, but Ryan and I are so the same. And he was saying, we're so similar. We're both artistic, creative men with beautiful wives. <laughs> you know, and it's a bit like, well, yeah. mate, I think there are quite a lot of, you know, talented, creative men who probably think their wives are beautiful too. You know, I don't know. It's funny because he kind of pulled the same thing with when he was introducing Alejandro Jodorowsky and um, about how similar spirits they were. And it's him like and, him and yeah, Jodorowsky. and Jodorowsky, meanwhile, was like you know he showed up in a um, old sweater and jeans, and Winding Refn was wearing a suit. And, and how old's Jodorowsky? Uh, ninety. And right. in fact, he's just about to release his new new film, Third of Four. Apparently, um, he does tarot readings for um, Nicholas Winding Refn ever since Drive. Uh, before he starts a project to decide if he should do the project and if Meaning so how. Meaning for Refn to decide if he's yeah, going yeah, to do the project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, Refn goes to Jodorowsky yeah. to get his tarot read. Um, if I were him, I'd get my money back for the Neon Demon tarot reading. Yeah, we, but... we saw that on our honeymoon um, in, in Paris back in 2016. We both hated that film, which is probably quite a nice bonding thing, wasn't it, for a honeymoon? Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> good to have something in common during that time. But um, but Jodorowsky pointed out this kind of comic of, you know, putting their ages and other things aside, you know, that Nicholas Winding Refn is so bourgeoisie and uh, Jodorowsky is proletariat. Exactly. As in his own kind of so way. So I think it feels but, uh, a little bit like the younger director is a bit of an upstart in a way to be drawing all these comparisons. And really the only reason I sort of forgive him, if you will, is because certainly I think Drive is a, an excellent film. 
Um, and I, so I mean, I think he's got something, you know. Controversial opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so no, I, I, I like um, um, Bronson and Valhalla Rising as well. Um, but I think in terms of like um, seeing a person at the event, the highlight for us would have been Garrett Brown. Mm. So Doug says to me, do you want to go see Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam? And I thought, my God, he must be old. I'm sure that there have been Steadicam shots for ever such a long time. And, mm-hmm. and, and if not, maybe not the inventor, but maybe he's just notable. No, it turns out this extraordinary gentleman, what do we think he is? 70-something. 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 Very, I would say, very L.A., very nicely dressed, very unassuming. He's actually an East Coast guy. Is he? Yeah, Um, Pennsylvania. Very humble, very, very interesting, articulate, um, a fascinating, lengthy, hour and a half, nearly two-hour Q&A about how he came up with the need for a Steadicam in order to produce... Um, sort of seamless free-flowing photography he showed us footage from his um, test reel his test reel of his I think soon to be if not already then wife running up the steps in um, Philadelphia the same steps that are so famous from Rocky which of course he famously did the Steadicam 4 and that's why Rocky was one of the uh, the films that we saw. Garrett Brown was absolutely fascinating. He showed us footage of uh, previous incarnations, didn't he, of, of yeah, Steadicam because he technology. had several different versions. He talked about how he had one that was very primitive, which he put a black sheet over so people would think it was more complicated because he didn't want anyone to steal it. Just um, absolutely amazing. And... Uh, and yeah, amazing. And then we stuck. He was, and also he was so humble and lovely that everybody then wanted to stick around and watch Rocky from like nine thirty or quarter to ten at night for two and a bit hours or whatever it was. Um, and that we all did so, and we stuck around, and it was blimmin' marvelous. I'm ashamed to say, as much as I love boxing and love boxing movies, I hadn't seen Rocky properly in its right. entirety. So that was another first, but um, that was great. Yeah, I hadn't seen it for uh, at least fifteen years, and. Uh... It's it's really surprising how little of a boxing movie it is for yeah. for the first three quarters and how much of a character drama it really is. You know, it's very much about um, Rocky and Polly screaming at each other and um, Talia Shire's character. Mm. Uh, you know, just <clears throat> kind of go, them going on these awkward dates and this really. Like kind of, you can tell that an actor wrote it because there's lots of chances for actors to do acting. Yeah. But in that sort of mid '70s kind of vibe that I just love. Yeah. One of the cool things that that Brown said is because Sylvester Stallone was not a darling of Hollywood by then, and he he's this sort of upstart who turns up with a script and says, "Do you want to make my movie?" And nobody really did. And so when Garrett Brown was brought on board, they said, "Do you want um, a fee or do you want a percentage?" And he, foolishly, as it turns out, thought, look, I'll just take the, what did he say, $14,000 yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we'll be done with it. And now, of course, you know, what a laugh, because it's certainly something you'd be wanting your residuals from. Yeah, it's um, something that whenever, every time you see those shots of the uh, Rocky climbing the steps in Philadelphia, you know, that's a shot mm. that Garrett Brown came up with. And mm. it was actually John Abvilson, the director, seeing the pitch reel for that that made him decide to shoot Sylvester Stallone going up those steps during that famous montage and then they just kept using him for more of the film and there's a shot near the end in the um, an overhead shot of the of the fight during round 13 or 15 mm. where you can actually see Garrett Brown walking through as a young man with his study cam in the wide but only if you catch it quickly because mm. I didn't notice it but you did nudge me and sort of go oh look yeah. so yeah yeah. So just extraordinary to see this actually not that old fellow who has done extraordinary work. And it was really neat. He, he showed us footage from other people's films. He showed us bits of Pride and Prejudice um, from Joe Wright's film with, the, with Kira Knightley and Matthew McFadden. Um, and, and Titanic. That's right. Showed us. He really broke down one of the, the scenes from Titanic. And then he also showed us a scene from what I think was Wolf Hall, the BBC TV production, didn't he, with a handheld. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and talked about when you should or would use a handheld camera instead of a steady cam and the fact that he didn't like it. And as you're watching it, you're like, they shouldn't have done handheld. What on earth were they <laughs> yeah. thinking? Um, and so, yeah, really interesting. Mm. And um, I guess another thing about this event is most of it takes place at the Cinematheque Francais, but there are satellite 
venues as well, because there's any number of theaters around Paris around Paris that do uh, retrospective filming, and that because they have so much programming, they can't all fit it in. And so um, Dave Kerr, who is the curator at the New York Museum of Modern Art, uh, which means that he's now able to use his power there to commission restorations of film, brought a uh, fistful of restorations that he'd commissioned, including a film called Lights Out in Europe, which we went to the um, Filmotech in the Latin Quarter to see, which was, you know, two o'clock on a Thursday in a wee theater with like 15 people in mm. it. Um, and so it's a black and white documentary. Yes. So it's not, a, it's not a fiction feature film, an absolutely fascinating documentary about Europe on the cusp of World War II. Am I right? Yeah, it's, the, it's very much shot over a year or two at the precipice with um, set in Poland and London and um, northern France. As, mm. uh, it's moving to, of course, this isn't going to happen oh, wait, this is happening, and filmed by an American director who had very strong opinions about entering the war, which, you know, from this perspective, we think, oh, it was a slam dunk. But during the time, there was a lot of opposition to entering World War II. Mm. So really incredible film in terms of its contemporaneous nature uh, and the fact that, of course, the people making the film and involved in it had no idea Mm. that the war was going to go for six years. The film doesn't span those six years. um, And uh, just... Yeah, very really fascinating whether you're a war person or a documentary person or whether you just like seeing old um, footage of well for me particularly London I think was wonderful. Yeah, well some of the I mean some of the war photography in it is just I mean it's hard to talk about these things as aesthetic objects when it's like also a document of war and atrocity mm. but like you know some of the actual night footage of cannons and things like that is just extraordinary in how it's captured mm. and documented and so it's quite watchable as a film apart from just its interest and i think also that in this sort of build-up of nationalism you can't help but find uncomfortable parallels to the you mean the current build-up of nationalism present day well and 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 compared to what's in the movie yes so that was that was awesome too so that sort of sums up the films that we saw together yeah in uh toute la mémoire du monde yeah you know, you'll be glad to know that we also went and saw a couple of straightforward, well, not necessarily straightforward. <laughs> well, straightforward might be an overstatement. Sure, but um, I guess what we would more call Hollywood movies. Mm. So on the Champs-Élysées, uh, there's uh, any number of movie theaters, and so we decided to head down there, which happened <clears> to be a few days after the Yellow Vests had wreaked some havoc, which gave it all a bit of a post-apocalyptic vibe, which might have impacted our screening of Us a little bit, I'd mm. say. Well, also um, the fact that in the, the screen that we saw Us, the new uh, Jordan Peele film, um, I think we were one of four people in the whole cinema. I mean, admittedly, it was during yeah. the day on a weekday, but still. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we settled into that. That was probably our main experience, wasn't it, of like a... Um, uh, um, a bit, yeah, but um, of a... What am I talking about? Like a big cinema... What would we call those? A multiplex? A multiplex sort of situation, that's right. Because, you know, otherwise the cinema take and all that's just full of a whole lot of people who don't dare to eat popcorn or drink because you're not allowed. Whereas here we didn't eat because we didn't buy any. <laughs> sure, sure. So Us was interesting. I mean, everybody uh, has been looking forward to it because uh, Get Out has made such a huge impression on everybody. So we went into it with very high expectations as well as... I, for certainly for me, and I can't speak for you, Doug, but certainly for me, I went into it with um, assumptions about the sort of film that I was going to be getting. And halfway through the film, I thought, well, wait just a second. Is this a story about race or not? And then even, even as I'm watching the film, I'm going, well, hang on a second. Are you racist for thinking that this should be a film about race? What is it that's making you think that it ought to be or isn't or is or whatever? Mm. So I was a little bit sort of confused within myself for a moment there well it was quite um to just to talk about the physicality of the screening for a bit it was a very modern theater and we descended into the basement which looked like something from the hotel in the shining Mm. a bit with this giant round room and then four doors and we went into this nice theater and we have something like 15 or 20 minutes of trailers and the house lights are on and then the film light starts and the house lights are still on and somebody, I think you were about to go get up and but talk to somebody. But then one of the somebody, other young but, lads in the, in the theater nipped out, thankfully. Yeah. 
And then the projectionist, once he turns off the lights, like pops down in our row to ask if he wants us to restart the film, which if you've seen the opening of the film is mostly a big advert for Hands Across America. Um, and we uh, like, no, no, just... Yeah, that's fine. Get just on get on with it. it. Yeah. It's all good. Please yeah. don't restart it. So oh, yeah. off it went. Yeah, it's a, it's a funny film to talk... I Like, I wouldn't want to talk about it too much on here for people... No, I don't want to spoil it ...who haven't it seen it, um, other than to say it's a... Um, you should totally go. I think it's completely recommendable. I do. But yeah. I don't think it's everything that I had hoped or expected it would be. Yeah, I didn't like it as much as Get Out. No. I thought... Um, there's a lot to commend it, and I think he's got... I'll keep watching his films. I think there, he would just bit off maybe a bit more metaphorical baggage than he could chew at the expense of plot. Um, the plot just doesn't quite fit together. There's some couple weird gaps in it, and trying to string this micro-story to this big macro-story that's happening, mm. which... Um, it's funny because it, Blumhouse produced it, and they also produced Split. Uh, not Split. Well, yes, Split, but also um, Glass. Mm. And Glass does a similar kind of thing where it tries to tell a giant worldwide story with a really small scope. Yeah. And you just feel a bit cheated, I think. I, th- I think, um, for me, coming out of us... Talk, I mean, it was. It's, I mean, isn't it always the way that I thought? Well, that wasn't quite what I wanted. And then you and I talked about it for quite a long time, which I think is always the mark of a good film. Mm. That whether you like it or not, or you think it worked or not, if you're talking about it at length afterwards, then that's great. Um, uh, but um, the thing for me was that I then went online and read interviews because I knew that nothing was going to spoil it for me, and therefore it didn't matter. And went reading the interviews with Jordan Peele, I went, ah. Oh, Oh, so that's what, what what you think. Okay, I get that, and now I understand it better, and I see where you were going with that. Or, or and slash, or what he also did, for those who have read Jordan Peele interviews, he says, well, it's sort of a Rorschach, how do you say it? Rorschach. Test for the, uh, for the viewer, and, um, and therefore you decide what you think it's all about, which I always think, ah, you know, how dare you? But I have to say... Reading the sort of the, almost the essays, the analytical essays afterwards helped me to appreciate the film and sort of to understand it on the level in which it might have been intended. But I don't think that that's how films ought to be, personally. I, I don't think it need that. I think if your film needs to be backed up by some sort of um, commentary or analysis um, in order for it to be understood, I don't think you've, you've done what you should do. I don't think that the thing is that that sort of leads to a you have to make everything for the most lowest common denominator viewer because films will assume some level of cultural knowledge that you may not have. And if you don't explain what an illusion is about or that actually, you know, Clueless is referencing Shakespeare or whatever, it's like, oh, you can't say, well, oh, I get that you're referencing Shakespeare, but you didn't say this is an adaptation of Shakespeare. Mm. So you failed. You, you have to say, oh, well, that's a thing that they're doing. Um, so I don't fully agree with that mode of argument, but I do think that even having read the interviews, I don't think he quite lands what he's trying to land. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's that, it's that ambitious second film syndrome. Mm. Um, Southland Tales comes to mind um, and it, it, as something that just kind of like, I've got a lot of ideas, I've got mm-hmm. a lot of money, I've got a lot of success, let's go. Mm. And... Mm. Sure. Um, should while we're talking about blockbusters, um, one that I think has much more modest uh, aims and nails them, I think, is uh, Shazam, which we uh, saw at the MK2 Bibliotech. Mm. Now, MK2 is famous to me as a film distributor. I've seen their logos bunches of times, but apparently in France you can also own c- cinema chains as well as distribute films. Mm. And that was a, that was a hard out sort of uh, multiplex situation. Again, I think we were. Two of four or five people in the whole cinema. Yeah. Um, yeah, Shazam was fun and I was prepared to go along. You know, my sort of fatigue with superhero movies is well noted. And this certainly was, was sold as being, not by Doug, but by the trailers and everything, as being a different sort of superhero mm-hmm. movie. So I was very, very happy to go. And I found it completely entertaining. I feel it could have milked aspects much more. I think that it, it, you know, it touches on things. Again, I suppose we don't really want to spoiler it, but um, you know, obviously there are a few little throwback moments or uh, callbacks to '80s movies or whatever, which are rather delightful. And I feel that they could have gone further, not 
not to a Deadpool extent, but you know what I mean, um, right. in terms of playing with the genre. Um, but the all of the leads, uh, well, all of the actors actually are, are charismatic and interesting, and the tropes are worn very heavily on everybody's sleeves, aren't they? So you sort of forgive all that. Yeah, what I, I was really surprised, because I went in... Um, thinking it was going to be something like big and you know the the ad at least in France is like um, Shazam wearing his cape and like chewing gum and the acting like a kid and the commercials are all like a bit Mm. fun and um, and the director that they hired for it did Lights Out in an Annabelle sequel Mm. and I'm like well that's a strange choice but okay Mm. and um, and so I went in thinking it was going to be the next big and it's like it's almost like it's not quite. It's not as good as Gremlins, but it's you know almost in that kind of tone. Where Do you I mean that there's quite a lot of darkness in it. it. It's, it's quite a dark film. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, there's some really brutal stuff, both with the monsters that uh, Shazam has to fight, and then some. Also, just I think some of the emotional yeah. stuff with um, being abandoned um, by one's parent and having to go into a foster home and yeah. all that. Like it's it's heavy lifting, and it looks like a G-rated fun film so mm. I'm really curious if there's anyone listening amongst our uh, friends who's taking kids to it what their reaction's been because mm. um, you're right even the Mark Strong character who plays the villain um, yeah he has a really grim upbringing as well you can't help but have some sympathy mm. for him which is entirely appropriate yeah. I think we should have some sympathy for villains but uh, it's pretty harsh yeah and that's the very first scene <clears throat> and it's a very very dark scene yeah. and, um, and that darkness permeates the film and um, you do get these moments of lightness and and it's to the director's credit that you know these kind of somehow balance each other into what eventually like once you realize what it's up to it feels like a coherent film Mm. but it feels like a film that's pitched more like you know the pg-13 indiana jones in the temple of doom kind of thing as opposed to um, the six to eight year old kids film I was kind of anticipating. Yeah, I didn't. I don't think I thought it was going to be that young. But uh, in mm-hmm. fact, actually, I was pleasantly surprised. Look, I'm not having to go at Deadpool, but I, I, I think Deadpool probably goes a bit harder than I would quite like it to. And I really liked that in this film. Um, when the actors are saying "Holy crap," um, that the uh, oh, no, they don't. They say "Holy moly." Yes. What um, was the French subtitle? The for French that? subtitle for that is "Nom de Chihuahua," <laughs> because apparently, if the French say "Nom de Chien," it's it's which means "Name of the dog." It's not like a swear word, but it's it's a little bit like "Oh my gosh." Uh, and so Nom de Chihuahua is a, a, a jokey, lightened version of that, which I thought was adorable. And I thought that the, the holy moly was absolutely fine. We didn't need to go anywhere near the kick-asses or dead paws of this world. Nah. Um, to go to the other end of accessibility, let's talk about our um, side trip to Belgium, uh, which uh, I booked us in in part because one of my... Um, friends and flatmates from film school lives in Brussels and I wanted to see him but also it turned out that there is a uh, film festival there called Off Screen which was happening over three weeks of genre film and I figured there'd be something to justify uh, (laughs) me going over there. I looked at the first two weeks and I was like I don't know if I can justify this and then I got to the third week and I saw that Peter Strickland's In Fabric was playing and that uh, Peter Strickland would be there and I told Sarah that we're going to France, uh, Belgium. Mm. So it was wonderful. We went um, on the uh, Friday morning, spent a lovely day in actual Brussels. The sun shone and it was wonderful. We went to the Magritte Museum, which I recommend to anyone who goes there. We had moule and frit and beer, just because that's what you have to, and it was all okay. Um, and then met up with our friend and um, had a spot of dinner and then went to meet, um, well, not to meet, but to see Peter Strickland uh, introducing his film. Now, I must just say, I knew about Barbarian Sound Studio, Studio. many years ago, probably before I dated you, um, and it was of interest to me ages, to see yes. it, the Dark Ages. Um, it was of interest to me to see it, but I never got round to it. I know that you've seen it, and you've seen Duke of Burgundy, um, and so um, Doug's actually quite good at being sort of a filter for me in, in terms of certain films that I might feel comfortable with or not. And I'd sort of got into my head that Peter Strickland was actually not a director that I would particularly take to. 
So this lovely, unassuming, nicely spoken Englishman comes out in sort of a, a sport coat, for want of a better word. Um, it was probably a corduroy jacket, who knows. Comes mm. out in this funny little sort of a, a warehouse-like cinema. Yeah, it, this, seemed, it just had like concrete walls, and it looked more like an old punk rock club than a uh, cinema that I've ever seen, I except thought, for the um, I thought seats bolted to the floor. They were going to be screening the film on like a white sheet or something like that. That's how it all felt. And we were all crammed in in these funny little seats. But anyway, um, it was crammed as well because, you know, mm. it clearly sold out. Peter Strickland comes out and says really nicely, um, thanks for coming to see my film. Uh, and then he mentions Brexit. And then mm. he talks about how he didn't really want to mention Brexit because it's bumming him out so much. Blah, blah, <laughs> blah. Then he rattles on for a little bit, but in a very endearing English way. And then we start watching the film. The film begins, as you've already gathered, we're seeing lots of films that are in um, English language but with various subtitles, and this film had French subtitles, so we thought all is well, and on we went, and then about 12 minutes into it, suddenly the film stopped, and the, you think, projectionist, or at least the cinema manager or somebody... Festival manager, let's say, who Right, runs out and says in French, look, I'm awfully sorry, in fact, he might have said it in Flemish, I'm awfully sorry, there are meant to be Flemish subtitles, we're so dreadfully sorry, we're going to restart the film, and it'll this time have the French and the Flemish subtitles. That's interesting, because the French subtitles were literally um, under the screen, there was a separate uh, thing for them, so it was like the whole screen... And then this little screen underneath with French subtitles. Mm. So for the start, I'm like, this is great. There's no bloody, you know, titles on the screen cluttering my field of vision. And the, the seating's laid out here in a way that I can't really see the French subtitles. Yeah. So poor pity on the French speakers, but yay for me. And, and so where, uh, did the fr- where did the Flemish subtitles wind up? On the they, were, they were on the big screen. Oh, um, right. Like okay. where the subtitles would normally be. Yeah. So we got to see the first 12 minutes again. We're not going to say a lot about that actual film because it hasn't properly been released, certainly not in New Zealand, and so there's a hope that you'll all get to see it. Um, mm-hmm. So we won't talk about it substantively, but I think it's fair to say that we both had a bloody good time. Yeah, I. Um, so I've seen both Barbarian Sound Studio and The Duke of Burgundy three times, and Peter Strickland's one of my favorite living filmmakers um, because of the way he uses sound, the way he uses picture, and his... Um, bizarre but wonderful sense of story and the last two films create these really unique hermetic universes and uh, and in fabric is uh, just to give the concept is a horror film about a haunted red dress um, but it's not a horror film in the sense that Wes Craven makes horror films uh, to be honest with you there is nothing about because I, I purposely knew nothing going into it literally nothing and then I say to you who's in it and you say Marianne Jean-Baptiste and I'm like oh I liked her in Secrets and Lies let's Mm. see where this goes and it starts very much as a domestic drama so there is nothing about it none of that kind of music or anything that indicates that this is going to turn into a horror film so I I think you know I hear what you're saying probably genre wise that is where it would fall. It would fall in probably, I don't know, Ann Timpson's section of the uh, the film festival program, do you suppose? Sure. It, it, it might be one of those weird in-betweeners. And, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, it's certainly not a hard film to stomach for the most part. There's one or two uh, transgressive scenes. But, and um, I think, and certainly from a plot perspective, as the body count piles up and the supernatural unfurls itself it's unquestionably horror but, but it's, it's not a conjuring it's not but it's terribly well written and it's so funny and it's so, so funny. funny and it's terribly well written not just narratively like it's got a really good story but it isn't just that is it it's like every line of dialogue is so witty and so clever and so unexpected and that's what makes it funny of course um brilliant acting from a cast of characters some whose faces you'll totally recognize even if you can't name them um and a whole bunch who you won't have seen in anything before and might just think gosh this is obscure and it's just it's wonderful film loved it yeah, I, uh, it was worth the trip to Belgium for that and the fact that I got to see one of my good friends and uh, enjoyed myself. What time chat with Peter Strickland at the end? Oh, yes, who is so lovely. And uh, uh, my, my friend who hadn't seen any Peter Strickland films fell in love with the soundtrack by Tim Gain, who was in Stereolab and is now Cavern of Antimatter. And so he went up and asked, oh, you know, is it coming out? He's like, oh, yes. Meaning is the soundtrack. Is the soundtrack coming out? And... Um, 
Peter Strickland's like, oh yes, in fact, let me show you the art, and gets out his um, iPhone to screen the um, art that's just come through today because he's created all new art for the film. I mean, that one of the joys of In Fabric is all the little details of like the catalog that he creates and mm. all these objects, and you can tell he has this um, almost fetishistic obsession with detail mm. and um, so that was you know honestly I mean because yeah. I'm looking at him as a just a human being who I had thought is he is he going to be strange and uncomfortable because he makes strange and uncomfortable films and he proves to be the antithesis of that and how adorable that this man in either the sports coat or the corduroy jacket suddenly lights up and is like I want to show you complete strangers who are fans <laughs> who have come all this way to see my film the actual artwork for the soundtrack album, because that was a really adorable moment. Um, one other comedy that, uh, or maybe unexpected comedy, that um, we might mention uh, before we go back to the Cinematheque Francais one last time, is on our last day in Paris, uh, I had been wanting to go to a cinema called Christine 21 the entire time I was there, mostly because it was run by Isabelle Huppert, the actress, but also because um, they had exceptional uh, programming of retrospective films. And I could have easily seen two films a day there the entire time I was there with all their various John Ford and uh, Blue Velvet was playing Running on Empty, the Sidney Lumet film Memento, but also a lot, th- this whole Ernst Lubitsch retrospective. And so it was in that retrospective we went to see To Be It or Not To Be which I'd never seen before, and I realized eventually I'd never seen a Lubitsch film before. And am I right in saying you hadn't either? No, not not knowledgeably. So to be and to be or not to be, I thought, wow, that's that's. Oh, I don't know what this is about, but surely that's a line from Shakespeare. And it turns out to be the most delightful and funny and clever black and white movie from 1942. Mm-hmm. So really, middle of World War Two. This, um, I'm telling you, listeners, because I didn't know this, and, and perhaps you did, but Ernst Lubitsch is a, or was rather, a German director who um, who clearly cottoned on quite early to the fact that Hitler was a, a nincompoop and that things were only going to go really badly, such that he decamped to America to make movies. And so in 1942, which, as I say, was three years before the war was even going to end, um, he's making this terribly funny send-up of Hitler, the Third Reich, and, uh, and um, the war efforts and all that sort of thing from the perspective of Polish people played mm. by Americans, which, of course, you'd never get away with now. <laughs> Jack Benny being the, the lead. The Polish actor who's a bit of a ham. Right, so it turns out that, that to be or not to be is relevant because it all revolves delightfully around an acting troupe in Poland um, whose theatrical efforts are suddenly... the Someone puts their... Well, I suppose the outbreak of war puts the kibosh on their uh, theatrical efforts. Uh, and then in quite a delightful way, they are all able to use their acting talents um, to embark on some bizarre sort of spy-oriented mm-hmm. um, exploits. It's, it's a really... It's a game of three halves, almost, like where the opening... T- 15 to 20 minutes is drop dead hysterical mm. right from the beginning of this you know breathless monologue is Adolf Hitler's in front of this sausage shop why is he there isn't he a vegetarian but he doesn't always stick to that he is known to eat country soul and all that and and then you find out that it's the actor from the play and da 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 and then it shifts gear into the very serious invading of Poland and uh and the characters who are there have to disperse and the troop is disbanded and it gets you know quite deliberately humorless for a while mm. and which is um but not preachy at all no because no. then the subplot at that moment which then becomes actually integral mm. to the main plot is is a sort of infidelity between uh, the main actor and his acting wife and so mm. on and so forth and that's when sort of the comedy of errors ensues doesn't it so it's, i mean the whole film has that delightful almost um marx brothers-ish sort of uh almost slapsticky Kind of. Well, actually, there are moments of slapstick. You know, oh, yeah, but, absolutely. But mainly yeah. it's just witty, witty wit. Um, there, there is um, this notorious uh, Nazi official who takes uh, up a lot of screen time in the back half, and he has this assistant who he keeps blaming things on, and that gets Schultz. a little... Yeah, why, Schultz. why did you let me make this order? You <laughs> yeah. already gave the order, sir, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, this is arguably a bit Hogan's Heroes or something. Or a bit of low, low. Yeah, but it's, um, it's funny, and, and the timing of it is just so 
effortless, you know, the the um, the coming ins and outs of yeah. the actors. We're um, halfway through watching Roman Holiday, which we put on last night, and it's a perfectly lovely film. But I just noticed with the timing in that and some of the camera blocking in that, that it doesn't have that flow. It doesn't have that no. motion, and that doesn't mean that you know Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn can't charm the pants off you when the when they're in full force in the scene. Sure. But then it can just take four seconds to get an actor off stage, and it's like... Mm. Mm. So to be or not to be, um, absolutely a delight. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, you totally should. Yeah. Um, so to switch gears a bit, one thing that happened when we were in Paris that was a big deal to me was that um, Agnes Varda passed away, and she most recently would be known to New Zealand audiences and world audiences for her film uh, Faces Places, which in French was Visages Villages. Visages Villages? Well, I guess it would be Visage Village. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that uh, played in the film festival, I think in 2016 or 17, mm -hmm. as the centerpiece film. And I was lucky enough to write a big feature piece on Varda at the time. And I found out all these great things about her that I hadn't known. I'd known she'd been affiliated with the French New Wave from her film Cleo from 5 to 7, but in fact, she directed the first sort of French New Wave film several years before, Godard and all those people, and um, even when she got pregnant and had a kid, she wound up making a whole film on the Rue Daguerre, the street she lives on, called Daguerreotypes, where she she couldn't go farther than the extension cord on her camera and sound gear. Mm. So she just made a documentary on her street so she could be home to feed her kid and then just keep going. And, um, and so that um, doggedness and determination and, and also just really appreciation of um, trying to get the lightness out of things, which is something that comes through in Faces Places, which is uh, she goes off into the countryside and interviews local people and which I think to some audiences reads quite apolitical but in fact that's sort of like the blue state person going into the red states in American terms and and not trying to take the piss or trying to mm -hmm. say why are you doing this but you know treat them as human beings and mm -hmm. interact with them um, so she passed away and age 92 two, I think yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and that, yeah, yeah. Li literally in a week that we were there and mm -hmm. uh so Doug looked online and found that the Cinémathèque Française was going to be holding sort of a gathering. I don't even know if they called it a tribute. They certainly didn't call it a memorial or anything like that, did mm. they? They're just like, you know, rock up at 10 o'clock um, on Friday morning uh, to come to, to say goodbye to Agnes Varda. Yeah, I, I think it was actually um, my editor at Letterboxd, Jenna Gracewood, who right. saw the tweet and let me know. And I was like, oh, well. We should yeah, totally yeah. go. Absolutely. So um, we yeah we showed up on a rainy morning um, about a half hour early, and good thing that we did because the giant um, cinema that we saw drive in was uh, we got in the next to last row of this five hundred person theater, and they eventually filled the stairwells. And and as we went in, it was actually like attending a funeral or a memorial service. They gave um, everybody a beautiful badge with a gorgeous sort of cartoon, almost caricature of Agnes Varda on it, and, uh, and a run sheet. And uh, it turned out that we heard speeches from everybody under the French luminary sun, in a way, starting off with the head of the Cinémathèque Française. Yeah. Uh, we also heard from Thierry uh, Fumeau, Fermeau. Fermeau, who is the head of the Cannes Film Festival. Um, the Minister of Culture for France spoke. The mayoral Minister of Culture for the... Paris. For the Paris Mairie spoke. And he and he he had quite a um, intimate knowledge of Agnes as well the the French mayor of culture who was greeted with potentially the most potentially the most tepid applause. Oh, that was the minister, the French of the, minister of culture. That's right. Um, All the so, others yeah. though were beloved of the audience. You could yes. tell. Uh, Sandrine Bonner, the actress yes. um, who had got her arguably her break in was it Vagabond? Yes. With yes. Agnes Varda. Um, decades and decades ago spoke. Now I must just say listeners, everybody spoke in French there was absolutely no interpreting going on whatsoever, so Doug just had to do his best and I had to do my slightly better than best the beautiful thing I would just say as a quick aside, the beautiful thing about the French 
is in these sorts of formal situations, they all speak very clearly and quite slowly as if knowing that others in the audience will need to understand. The Italians couldn't give a damn about that. They'll just speak <laughs> at their usual fast pace and if you don't understand, too bad. But the French were unbelievable and I was able mm. to, um, not to, to interpret to Doug because I can't do anything like that that quickly or that well, but I was able to pick up on most of what was said Sandrine Bonnet told a very moving anecdote, um, not just from the perspective of somebody who once worked with Agnes Varda, but as somebody who had maintained a relationship with her and who had seen Agnes as recently as the Wednesday before she passed away on the Friday. It, sound, it sounded like she, they saw each other every Wednesday. That's right. And um, they would, um, and when she went last time. Uh, Agnes was autographing these pictures that she had taken of couples who had been together for a long time holding hands. And um, Agnes Varda's partner, Jacques Demy, who is a filmmaker of, of great fame in his own right, um, the young girls of Rochefort and the umbrellas of Cherbourg and what happened, died in 1990. And so Sandrine said, well, why don't you have a picture? And she's like, well... Uh, you know, my I'm a she widow. She says I'm a widow, and and Sandrine says, "Well, I'm divorced, and and so uh, what? Let's take you know, let's be married." And, and, they... and so Sandrine held Agnes's hand, and they took a photo of that, and it was incredibly moving because mm. she was very very cut up um, re recounting this. Uh, and talking about this um, this beautiful relationship that they had. They also played uh, clips from some of the films. The opening was a clip from uh, Cleo from 5 to 7, and, uh, of course, they played a clip from Vagabond before Sandrine's They spoke. They showed lots of TV interviews, which, again, weren't subtitled or interpreted, oh. which was such a shame because the audience would laugh uproariously at parts, and Doug and I would feel a bit foolish. They got a standing ovation for one <laughs> something yeah. she said to a male interviewer. Clearly very sort of, um, and I guess... Is a ridiculous term to use nowadays, but back in those days it would have been very relevant to say very feminist ideas about, mm. well, yes, why shouldn't I be making film? And of course I can go and do this, and so what? I have two children and blah, blah, mm. blah, um, which was definitely the timbre, the, the, the tone of the whole thing, and I suppose of Anya Sparta's life. Mm. So Yeah, I mean, there was the um, great scene from Faces Places where she and uh, the young uh photographer slash artist J.R. recreate the um, scene from Band of Outsiders where they race through the Louvre, only J.R. is pushing Agnes in her wheelchair. Mm. And um, J.R. got up to speak after that. And, um, and at, the, at the memorial. At the memorial and was, um, was a bit slow to get started because he was quite moved to tears. Yeah. But, uh, eventually told a number of funny stories about how he would FaceTime with Agnes, but because she was so short and the way she held her phone would often only see the top of her okay. head on FaceTime, but yeah. also how she would um, be the slowest person to get anywhere because she was always really interested in everything and everybody and getting their story. Mm. And, uh, and that was really lovely. Um, Catherine Deneuve was a last minute addition who wasn't on the program, but uh, had been in a couple of her films and got up and later we learned, read a Rimbo poem. And, and uh, Jane Birkin, um, previously wife of Serge Gainsbourg. Um, yeah. And somebody, I have to say, an actress who I've been watching in Agatha Christie movies since I was very young and have absolutely mm. loved, she got up and sang a little song in her wispy voice and was clearly moved to tears as well. Mm. So Doug and I felt like we had sort of accidentally sort of gatecrashed or stumbled into a sort of a family gathering. And it was interesting mm. that the articles about it, well, actually, I think mm. also the people speaking at the time were very yeah, familiar and a lot of people addressed what they were saying to Agnes Varda and, um, and, and also to her children who yeah. were in the front row. And so there was a lot of talk, wasn't there, about we are a family. Um, there were two people from Cinetamaris, which was her production company, that read a poem. And um, uh, from the articles we've read, we've learned that like there were all these people there we hadn't realized, like Jacques Audiard and Marianne Cotillard and so many people from the French film industry. The star of Cleo from 5 to 7 was there. Mm. Um, and it was um, her influence and presence over such a great chunk of time, and especially her continued relevance. I mean, mm. there's so many filmmakers that are, are actors or people in the, this industry that they pass away, and I'm like, uh, sometimes I'll have the reaction, oh, they were still alive? Mm. Um, because their last work was so far in the past and mm. I hadn't heard anything. Whereas um, she's been so vital and in fact her final film just premiered in Berlin. 
And so it's worth saying that two days ago, the poster came out for the 2019 Cannes Film Festival, which Doug and I both have been accredited to attend in May. And uh, the poster... Um, is absolutely gorgeous, and it is a beautiful photograph of Anya Sparta, age, what, 26? Something th- like that. I She's shooting The Point Court, which is her first film. Right, and it's a gorgeous shot of her standing on the back of a technician so that she can be high enough to look through the lens of the, uh, not the lens, the eye piece of the camera, um, and... Uh, you can just tell that she was absolutely beloved of the French film industry and of French filmmaking for many, many decades. And it feels very genuine. This is not something that they've come up with just at the last minute because, oh, whoops, a woman filmmaker died and we need to sort our show out in terms of representation. It feels yeah. very genuine and very loving, doesn't it, and meaningful? Well, um, Terry Fermo referenced that Agnes Varda was one of the women on the steps of the red carpet last year when there was a um, movement for uh, more representation and that she had, you know, not rested idle. And in fact, she has a long history from her fighting against um, draconian abortion laws in France in the 70s to mm. today of getting on the front lines as well as uh, making your films. Yeah. So yeah, so that's what we've been up to, we, you know, seeing some art and eating some food and stuff too. <laughs> uh, in case you're worried that there's now going to be a dearth of films for Doug and Sarah over the next month until Cannes, don't be, because we are staying in Bagni di Luca, which is only about 40 minutes out of Luca, which is a rather substantial walled town in uh, Tuscany, where, would you believe it, starting tomorrow, they have a, a short, um, well, I was going to say a short film festival. They have a film festival. A brief duration. A brief duration. And but of feature films. That's right. And uh, so some of the hallowed guests there include... Uh, Joe Dante. Um, Mick Garris and Rutger Hauer, as well as uh, the French animator Michel Ocelot and the Italian director Paolo Taviani, who we uh, won't be seeing because we don't speak their languages as well. Mm. So we, uh, we do have several things lined up. We've bought our tickets and we'll be heading off to Luca tomorrow. Um, so there will be plenty of films to come. And our apartment has a bunch of, HK, um, of Hong Kong VCDs in it, so we'll be uh, watching lots of 4x3 films from uh, 2005 if we run out of those. Yeah. Thanks for listening to another episode of Married to the Movies. Bon voyage.